Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Welcome to 15-Minute Film Fanatics, the podcast in which two friends and lifelong film fans sit down and discuss what makes movies great. This week, we're going to cover one of my favorite films, which is Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye from 1973, an adaptation of the novel by Raymond Chandler. Famous detective novel, same detective as The Big Sleep, uh, famously played by Humphrey Bogart. Absolutely. Now, uh, you want to talk about a little, like, why we're doing this episode? Because this is kind of like, this is like another version of our Dark Knight episode. Absolutely. So this is one of my favorite movies. I had mentioned in passing since it was such a classic and it's such a favorite of mine uh, to Dan and asked him what he thought and would it be good for the podcast. And he admitted that he had never seen it and had a good reason why. Well, because I, I texted Mike at the time that the idea of Elliot Gould playing Philip Marlowe was kind of like imagining Tom Arnold play Vito Corleone. Which is a great line, but totally insane because <laughs> Elliot Gould is the best, the best detective on film that I can think of off the top of my head. Better than Humphrey Bogart, better than anybody else. He is the king of cool. All right. Well, perhaps you'd like to ask me in our first segment where we talk about our big takeaways, what I thought. I would. What did you think? I thought it was great. I thought it was great. Um, here's two things that occurred to me watching this. Uh, all my, my silly joke about Tom Arnold aside. And I always liked Elliot Gould. So I had seen MASH. I mean, mm -hmm. everybody thinks MASH is a great movie because it is. So that's kind of what I associated with him with. And I just never got around to seeing this. So two things that struck me. One is that, um, Mike, you had told me, uh, you'll see it's so funny. It's so funny. It's so funny. I didn't think it was as funny as it was amusing and charming. And I don't mean that like, I don't mean like funny is at the top of a hierarchy. It's just a different kind of movie. Um, I thought it was, I, I smiled the whole time I was watching it mm -hmm. when I wasn't cringing at certain things like the bottle on her face, but um, it was, it was charming. I think he was charming and I'm going to talk about Ellie Gould a lot as we get into our second segment. So that was the first thing. The second thing was it was so much fun to watch a, a genuine seventies movie instead of a movie like we see now where a director is trying to recreate the 70s. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, you know, everybody, I think, um, you know, justly for a lot of reasons uh, praised, it looks great. That's what everyone says about the movie. It looks great. It looks great. It looks great. Um, but you're always conscious of the fact that somebody had to make that look. So when you're watching Brad Pitt's car and you're watching the recreation of Leonardo DiCaprio's non-existent TV show – they're really funny because they're so they're so evocative of that time. But you know that a lot of money went into making that look right. When you watch a movie like The Long Goodbye, they're in it. Like they're living that world. You're watching that world of the '70s in California, and it was really really great to see. So the really interesting thing for me too is the way that Altman can't help but be in the film as the director, though. So maybe your eye is off the ball of the look of the 70s and you're right, it's totally natural, right? They don't have to put period cars on the street. There's everybody just parked they're their just car. Cars. They're, they're just called cars. They're just called cars. They're just called cars. Except for if you catch what- What Marlowe drives. What Marlowe drives. Yeah. Uh, but one thing for me, for example, is the music. If you if you caught the theme of- the Well, it's the you can't avoid it. It's every scene. Yeah. Following him around. And we've talked about this a couple of times on the show, but there's the first scene where- Marlowe wakes up in his apartment and he's got to go get the cat food yeah. and he introduces you to the streets of LA yes. and his apartment and him going down. And for those first 10 minutes, I just feel like I'm in great hands. Yeah. Uh, every shot feels well composed, feels interesting. The music has my attention. Elliot Gould is just the coolest guy. You know, what, you know when I, I knew I was in good hands in the beginning is when it was three in the morning and he went to get the curry brand cat food and put his tie on. <laughs> Like every every good detective right. has to have a time. You have to put your tie in at three in the morning when you go to get cat food. And it takes him three cigarettes to yeah. get out of the apartment. And he's got to talk to the girls and see if they need anything. Yes. Brownie mix. They need Listen, brownie mix. In your opinion, what makes Elliot Gould 
such a cool Marlowe. Well, why don't we why don't we save that for the second segment, which okay. we'll start right after these words. Sure. We're going to pause here because we just want to tell you something. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. The first point is it's free. Yeah. Second, they have all the tools that you need to create, record, and edit your podcast right on your phone or your laptop. Third, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. You pick up sponsorships, you can make money from your podcast, and there's no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So in the second segment, we like to talk about a key scene or revealing moment. Let's pick up where we just left off. Dan, what makes Elliot Gould such a cool Philip Marlowe? Well, it has to do with my key scene, which which I, uh, I told you as soon as I saw you this morning. I said, you know, you don't take my line, and I don't think you have it. Here's my line. Here's when it occurred to me. Elliot Gould's talking to Mrs. Wade. He shows up. She's given him more information on the case, and she says, you don't look like your picture. And I thought that's what makes the movie so great is because Elliot Gould does not look like the picture I had formed of Philip Marlowe from reading Raymond Chandler and from watching The Big Sleep with Bogart, you know, over and over. And I have a, I have a, a framed, matted photograph of him and Lauren Bacall hanging in my office. And so I, I, I see it every day. Um, so when she says, you don't look like a picture, I'm like, well, that's for sure. He certainly does not look like the picture of Philip Marlowe, but it still works. Um, you'll read that people will say, oh, the movie's a spoof or a send-up. It is not a spoof. It is not a send-up. It is an absolutely loving evocation of the novel. Also, of course, as you told me, written by the same uh, person whose name escapes me now, who wrote The Big Sleep. That's right. Um, so here's what I think. Of, here's what I thought was great about him. Here's my. I had a secret list for Million Dollar Baby. Here's my secret list about what makes him so cool. There's all the all the. Um, and please add to this list. Sure. Every private eye trope is in this movie, right? The cops are all wrong mm-hmm. about Terry. Um, he drinks in the middle of the day. He puts his tie on at three in the morning, right? He smokes constantly. Um, as a first time viewer, you'll love to hear this. When he wakes up and the cat wakes him up in the first scene and there's all the marks on the wall behind him, um, um, I was thinking, what are those things? And then he lights a match on one. I'm like, oh, he just lights it. And the whole movie. So that's a trope, right? Constant smoking. Um, he's totally indifferent to the, to the yoga hippie girls next door. His car is great. He wears the same clothes in the entire movie. It's always a suit, right? Um, another trope, the corrupt rich, right? The rich folks are all corrupt, right? Um, another trope, the, the rich that hire him have bad marriages, um, there's the there's the um, sexy wife who kind of comes on to him, but he resists her. Um, he's accidentally involved in this case. That's a great private eye trope, right? And then um, you know when um, Roger dies and when he gets arrested, it's always he's smarter than the cops and, and being a, a smart aleck to them. They say, oh, "Was that smart? Was that smart?" So that he takes Ellie Gould and Robert Altman together take every private eye trope and they don't play with them. They don't make them ridiculous like an airplane. But because Elliot Gould is there and he believes in it, I think it, it works so well that it's, there's no irony to it at all. It's not like having um, Leslie Nielsen play, um, you know, a Dragnet or play Jack Webb. No, this is not the Naked Gun. No, I, it's not I, at all. I think that. So, so what do you think, Elliot Gould? Why sure. So I have two moments, but they mirror each other in a way that I find really interesting and revealing. So my first moment is when after he gets out of prison, he goes into the bar. Uh, and he sees the guy playing the long goodbye and he's joking with them about the lunch specials and they've had the same, you know, they're trying out sandwiches. We have sandwiches now. And the pad with the picture of the ship on the wall. That's a great seventies bar thing. <laughs> so great. So he's, he's in there, he's in there smoking and making calls and he goes to find out if there's any calls from, he gets the rotary phone 
from, from the back of the bar. And the beautiful thing is how anachronistic that is for the 70s. So I think that it might be lost on a viewer what's, what's going on here, um, a modern viewer, which is he's in a 50s bar in the 70s. Right. His, his choices are all consciously anachronistic for the time. And I think that if that were just a trope of the movie that I would be less interested in it until the scene on the beach where Roger dies uh -huh. and it's turned out that everybody's lying and the cops don't actually know what's going on. And he starts to cry and he gets angry because everybody's blamed Terry. And, and he's you, drunk. And you just think it's terrible about Terry. And it's the one time before the ending where he loses control. Mm -hmm. And you can see that we understand that the act that he puts on or the, the way that he shows himself to the world is some kind of mask. It's some kind of persona, but what's under there is an actual persona. And I think that there's a lot of people in the movie that are really just a mask and there's nothing under it. And the beach scene is the first time where he loses the cool that he has in the bar. He shows why he's still in the fifties because the world that he's operating in is a world where nobody cares about anybody. Right. And the, the relations between people have been dissolved. I thought that well said, Mike, well said. Cause I thought when I saw that scene where he breaks down on the beach, is that my thought was Bogart would never do that scene. He, he doesn't know how. And that's, that's why I think that Elliot Gould makes the best Philip Marlowe that I've ever seen. You know, no offense to Humphrey Bogart, and I love the movie yeah, The Big sure. Sleep, but you, you, can't, you can't get that. And it's like... I don't think you get it in the novels, by the way. No. You he, don't get that. You don't get that different layer. In the novels, at least as far as I've read them, you don't get the sense that Marlowe has this, uh, this inner layer. No, there, there's, it's clear that there's something that's being held back and... It's easy to think that it's smarmy or he's being smart at some kind of superior intelligence, but it's not. It's superior emotional intelligence. It's I think it's true I, for Elliot Gould, you but not for Marlowe as written. That's right. Okay. Right. Because I love the part where she says, would you like a dry apricot? And she says, no, to tell you the truth, they give me diarrhea. Now, you cannot imagine Robert Mitchum saying that or Humphrey Bogart saying that. Oh, or, you know, great Philip Marlowe's, but you just can't imagine. All right, give me diarrhea. Right. They, they don't have it in them. And then he, he puts it in his right. uh, in his shirt right. pocket. And another thing we can add to it is that there is to the end of the tropes, what doesn't he do in the movie? There's no fist fights. He doesn't take out a gun. At, at one point, I'm, I thought to myself, does he have a gun? Now, of course, that's the payoff that he, right. he finally uses the gun. So that's right. Let's move on to segment three. Okay. Welcome back. In the third segment, we like to talk about our major takeaways, the ending, the title. So, Dan, I know you wanted to kick it off here. Sure. I thought the ending was, of course, terrific because you don't get the gun. Where's the gun? And then the gun comes out. It does exactly what it should. Um you know, actually, it occurs to me right now that I think it was Raymond Chandler who said, when the plot lags, bring in a man with a gun. <laughs> it's it's the reverse uh, Chekhov's gun. Yes. I mean, it's yeah. the one that you never see that goes off the, at the, the end. Yes, exactly. The gun that you never see hanging on the wall. So I thought after he shoots Terry and there's that great uh, inverse of the third man at the end when he sees Mrs. Wade coming back, he starts kind of gets a bump in his step and you hear, hurry for Hollywood comes on. And... There's something very interesting about that is the choice of movie for the end. Obviously, it's ironic after what you've just seen. But, you know, we have the, the guard to the Malibu um, estates who always loves to do the impressions of Barbara Stanwyck and Walter Brennan. But it reminded me about how much the movie makes us think about Hollywood detectives versus real detectives and how we've all been raised on, like I said before, Robert Mitchum and, and Harvey Bogart and things like that. And it, it made me appreciate going back to this idea, which is about um, how great Elliot Gould is. It made me appreciate the casting of this movie, the genius, like Brando says in Apocalypse Now, the genius of that, the genius to get Elliot Gould to play Philip Marlowe, it is so, it's so out of the box. 
that it works. And I think the hurry for Hollywood reminds us that it's, it's all made up and that the, there's nothing like a, a quote unquote detective looks like. And so it made me think about other famous roles that were supposed to be played by somebody else and how unthinkable that is. Like, do you know who was supposed to play Victor Laszlo in Casablanca? Do you know this one? I don't. Ronald Reagan. So Reagan was supposed to play Victor Laszlo. Um, the original Indiana Jones was supposed to be Tom Selleck. Yikes. The original Han Solo was supposed to be Al Pacino. Right. The original um, Michael Corleone, you know this? No. Jack Nicholson. So we th- we might think to ourselves, well, that might be interesting. Or, but, you know, we'd obviously never know. We would never know the difference. But you can't think about Jack Nicholson playing Michael Corleone and think it would be the same experience. And it almost seems like wrong. And uh, that, of course, is ridiculous because we wouldn't know what the two alternatives were. But the movies have convinced us that detectives look this way and, and here's how detective movies work. And I think this movie kind of flips it over, but does it in a loving way. I think part of the brilliance, too, is that kind of an insider note on Elliot Gould is that he was friends with everybody. He was kind of like the, the Hollywood man who knew everybody and really stretched across the chasm of old Hollywood and new Hollywood. So he knew people of his generation. He knew people of the previous generation. He's married to Barbara Streisand uh, and had a lot of major industry uh, connections that way but he's i think supposed to be the last holdover of some co- sort of moral hollywood armageddon it's it's supposed to be <laughs> that he's a holdover from some kind of time of values that can't be brought back but that doesn't mean that he has to take it and i think that that's that's su- great it's like a car to take that's exactly. why he drives that car and that's what so what you're saying is that the the, the song hurry for hollywood at the end is that's that that's um philip marlowe in this movie that's philip marlowe's inner theme song like yeah hurry for hollywood hurry for that time when that song was not ironic that's right and i think that the point of the lack of irony is again to show it that's there's this famous saying that irony is the song of the bird that has come to love its cage and i think that marlowe in contrast is is zipping around at at least spiritually and i don't think that there's supposed to be any irony in in shooting terry and and then hearing it i think that he's he struck a blow for something. And the yes. question on subsequent rewatchings is what is it exactly? Or what are the parameters of his moral universe? And that's why he gets to play his little harmonica. <laughs> that's right. I love the little harmonica that, that comes out of nowhere. It's, it just strikes me. This is actually, I want to say both the least and most violent detective film that I've ever seen. <laughs> yes. You know, it's not like he punches a bunch of guys or, you know, takes them There's down. No fights. There's there's no fights except that he gets beaten he gets roughed up a little bit by the uh, gangster played by Mark Rydell who's and his, terrific his yes. and also when when he breaks the the Pepsi bottle on her face I mean that's just brutal. that's right in in other words there's only two moments but those those two moments I think are real violence yes there there's nothing funny about the Coke bottle scene it's totally right. uh, vertiginous it's to- you, you just say what and how yeah. how did that happen yeah. in such a funny lighthearted uh, movie yeah and the movie's telling you it's not lighthearted. It's, you know, it's shocking. There's a, there's always that trope in detective movies where somebody gets shot and they hold their chest and they keel over. There's nothing funny about the death of Terry. No. The death of Terry is as least as painful to Marlowe as it is to Terry, except not really because he's dead. Yeah. You know, and, or to watch um, Mrs. Wade's husband, Roger, uh, disappear into the water. There's yeah. nothing There's nothing funny no. about no. those moments, the, the way that they serve to just kind of move the plot along. And I think that there's there's something about spotlighting uh, those moments and making their real consequences for physical violence that is both 
old Hollywood and new Hollywood. That's a great way to put it. It's, 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 both, it's both kinds of detective movies in one. And one more quick thing is we were talking about the ending. We talked about the third man. Another ending it reminded me of, by contrast, is the ending of Chinatown, which is you know everything you're saying about the detective's way to rise above that. So Jake's way in Chinatown to rise above the corruption of the world is to never go back. Like, I'm never going back to Chinatown. And his smart aleck uh, persona is a way to prove he's superior to everyone else in the movie, but it's not good enough at the end. But I think at the end of this, Philip Marlowe's, his, his persona that he's adopted is a way to kind of at least shield himself from the corruption around him. Yeah, and I think that the break in the music formally is, yeah. is what that's supposed to signify. The, the song, The Long Goodbye, is literally haunting Marlowe. It's following him from his apartment into the store. It's following him through his car. It's hummed on, you know, everybody's humming it. The, the new hip guys are playing it yep. at the party. And I think that what Philip... Marlowe wants is an old new song, just like this is an old new movie. <laughs> he wants to live in that world where the people sang Hurry for Hollywood and really meant it. See you next time. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to this week's episode on Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye from 1973. Just as a quick shout out, we missed the name of the screenwriter earlier. Her name was Lee Brackett. She was actually the original writer of The Big Sleep. She wrote, of course, The Long Goodbye, as well as Rio Bravo with Dino and The Empire Strikes Back. She's got a wonderful filmography. You should check her out. That's last name B-R-A-C-K-E-T and see what else she wrote. And also, we'd like to remind you that you can tweet to us at 15 Minute Film Fanatics. That's at 15-F-I-L-M fan, 15 Minute Film Fan. And also on every episode description, wherever you get your podcasts, there's a link and you can leave us a voicemail. Please tweet to us or leave us a voicemail about ideas for shows, movies you want us to cover, suggestions. We really, really want to make this as great as it can be. So we'll take all the feedback you can give us. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks.